Last year in Turin, Ukraine won the Eurovision Song Contest and it wasn't close. There were two reasons for this. One was that Ukraine's entry, Stefania by Kalush Orchestra, was a proper Eurovision banger by any measure. A giddy hybrid of mournful Ukrainian folk and frantic modern hip-hop, performed in a mix of traditional costume, leather trousers and fluorescent bucket hats, adorned with solos played on the Talenka and Sapilka, both types of Ukrainian flute, and accompanied by a dancer dressed as a carpet just outstanding work all round. The other reason for Ukraine's victory was overwhelming and entirely proper public sympathy. Kalush Orchestra had been chosen to represent Ukraine in Turin two days before Russia launched its absurd and brutal attack upon its neighbour in February last year. Stefania was quickly adopted as a patriotic anthem by Ukraine's defenders and Ukraine's people. The usual rule with Eurovision is that the winner accepts the honour and the burden of hosting the following year's contest, as Ukraine had on two previous occasions. This year, for obvious reasons, this was not possible, and so last year's runner-up, the United Kingdom, volunteered. Next Saturday, Ukraine's victory lap will take place in Liverpool. Last year's Eurovision Song Contest was yet another demonstration of the extraordinary political and diplomatic potence of this curious annual circus. For much the same reasons, this year's Eurovision will be as well. What has being reigning Eurovision champions meant to Ukraine during this dreadful year? How is Liverpool preparing to acknowledge the rightful hosts? And could Ukraine become the first country since Ireland in 1994 to go back to back? This is The Foreign Desk. The video for the song Stefania wasn't supposed to be about the war. It wasn't supposed to have all the elements of the devastating consequences of the war that it has now. And every time we're performing that song, you cannot ignore the fact that there's a war going on in Ukraine because you see it, because you know it, because you know that what this song represents now. The Superland banana, the symbol of Liverpool, has been painted into yellow and blue colors. There's been Ukrainian food introduced across different restaurants and cafes. There's Ukrainian cocktails. Children are learning Ukrainian in schools and learning stuff about Ukraine. They've just stepped above and beyond to make sure that Ukraine feels well represented here. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we will hear from, among others, Ukraine's ambassador to the United Kingdom, the staff of Monocle's Eurovision Desk, and this year's entry from Ukraine. But joining me first of all from last year's victorious Ukrainian Eurovision entry, Kalush Orchestra, MC Kiliman. Kiliman, first of all, I wanted to ask you about this time one year ago or so. You had this extraordinary period in February 2022 within just a few days in which Kalush was selected to go to Eurovision and then you had to absorb the fact that Russia had attacked your country. Can you remember what that week felt like? I can easily say it was probably one of the craziest moments in our lives and yeah, it's weird how balanced life sometimes is. On one hand, you have this disastrous, absolutely devastating news coming from every place of your beloved motherland with the unprovoked aggressor from Russia. 
And on the other hand, you have one of the biggest or maybe the biggest achievements in your professional career. It was tough. Did you understand at that moment that for Kalush going to Eurovision, the stakes had been now raised? You were going to be representing your country to a huge global audience at a time of national peril. How daunting was that? I don't know if we understood that from the very beginning. I think the further it goes, the bigger it was getting to us. It changed a lot from just representing ourselves our music, our brand, our vision, our mission, et cetera, et cetera. We was now supposed to represent the whole country in our struggle and our fight for our freedom and basically for our lives and our future. It was different. But when you were thinking about how you were going to perform, you know, once you got to Turin, did the fact of what was going on in Ukraine change how you went about it? Was the performance different to what it would have been had Russia not invaded? On the surface, probably not much, like the way it looked, I mean, like little choreography and singing. But when we were performing and some terrible things were happening in Ukrainian Mariupol, our leader, Oleg, was able to give a very short but extremely powerful message to the whole world that we need to save Azovstal and we need to save Mariupol right now. I'm happy we were able to make that message to tell people that besides this beautiful, organized and with great intentions to unite people from different countries, song contest, besides that, there was some other things, some bad things going on right in that same moment in our beloved motherland country of Ukraine. Kalush went to Turin as runaway favourites to win it, not just because of the quality of the song, but also because of the prevailing circumstances. But when you realised you had actually won this thing, are you able to explain what that felt like? I think everyone who ever won anything can relate to it. It's a great feeling. It's everything. It's happiness. It's joy. It's so much rewarding. You understand it. Dreams do come true that you was working for something and now you're getting it and it's everything. It's bigger than life. But in this particular instance, it's not just the benefits of winning. You and Kalush get, I guess, endowed with a, a remarkable responsibility. By winning this thing, you instantly become among the most famous Ukrainians on earth at a time when your country is fighting for its life. Did you realize that you had also become ambassadors for Ukraine? Again, maybe not like instantly, but at the end of the day, yes. And we understand that the responsibility is huge. And I hope we are doing our job as good as we should be doing it. So what kind of things have you been doing in that role since you won Eurovision? So first of all, we've made an auction where we sold the Eurovision trophy and our band leader, uh, Oleg, uh, hat from the auction and we raised a lot of money I don't want to be mistaken but I think it was something close to a million dollars or something like that for both and we gave that money for Ukrainian army every single concert every single show we've done after that we was raising money we was asking people to donate and in total I think it's something close to 1.6 million dollars that we were able to raise 
and we pass that money to Ukrainian army and mostly this part of job and also just letting people know what's going on and like the video for the song Stefania wasn't supposed to be about the war it wasn't supposed to have all the elements of the devastating consequences of the war that it has now and every time we're performing that song you cannot ignore the fact that there's a war going on in Ukraine because you see it because you know it because you know that what this song represents now so every time we're performing people those who are aware they are being reminded those those who weren't aware if there are people like that i don't know they are being a little bit schooled about it as we look ahead to this year's Eurovision contest at which Ukraine will be defending its title, albeit that it will obviously be being held in Liverpool, how important do you think this contest is going to be to Ukraine at home and for the people of Ukraine, but also for Ukraine's continued visibility on the world stage? For Ukrainians, Eurovision is huge. I remember winning for probably the first time back in 2004. It was a mass celebration. It's like your soccer teams, like your football team is winning and they're coming home and everyone is celebrating. So like right now, during the war, it's like plus 10 times, you know? It's the biggest cultural event for Ukrainians. And the war is not over. We still have to fight. We still have to make new allies we still have to ask for additional aid and help and support and this year's song is beautiful this year's song is also about who we are as people as nation as those who are defending their home it is crucial it is important to perform as great as it is possible in this year's contest but then again besides just the cultural part the musical part the audiovisual part there's also a probably this time bigger part of reminding people from other countries that the war is not over, the threat is still very real, that if Russia will win, they will not stop in Ukraine. They will go further because that's what happens when you let a bully hurt someone. And our mission and our task is to stop them, not let them do that, to make them understand that in 21st century, people have to unite, not invade each other. And just very, very finally, though it's very hard to do justice to in an audio medium, can you tell our listeners a bit about your look, what you're wearing right now? I can see you, but they can't. And how you arrived at this? Yeah, it's one of Ukrainian national things. It's this colourful carpet thing that people either used to have on the floor or more often on the walls as a piece of a decor. The Ukrainian winters are tough and sometimes it's cold inside. But when you have a whole bunch of carpets on every wall, it's kind of warmer. So I'm a killing man. In English, it would sound like carpet man. There's a story behind this thing. Everyone is invited to my Instagram. I have pictures there. I have videos there. I'm doing my little thing there. There's a story behind it. There's a whole music video for one of the songs where it is explained in lots of details how I ended up being a carpet man. You should see it. Killerman, thank you for joining us. That was MC Killerman from Kalush Orchestra. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. 
You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. And I'm joined now by Vadim Prashtyko, Ambassador of Ukraine to the United Kingdom. Ambassador, first of all, we were just thinking it is a little over a year ago since you were sitting in this studio and we weren't sure whether this invasion was happening or not. I want to ask you, first of all, about the relationship between the United Kingdom and Ukraine in the time since. Do you feel like the two countries have become much closer? I do believe that we are growing closer. But we started with the good notes initially. Remember that even before the war, we were getting quite close. We just had the visit of the President Zelensky. We signed the strategic treaty. We started building up the capabilities of our armed forces, especially the fleet. So we were on, on the right track. With the war starting, we just you know, found out that we have a friend on who we can rely we had many friends, but some of them, like UK, were quite proactive and offered assistance from the very beginning. And in that early stage in particular, in terms of assembling, I guess, an international coalition, an international alliance behind Ukraine, how important was Boris Johnson as a single figure? Obviously, Boris Johnson has been at pains to suggest that he was extremely important, but is that assessment shared in Ukraine? If you remember, Boris came to Ukraine on 8th of February, on 24th. The war was already there in Ukrainian land. So you can imagine how important it was to have a leader of one of the uh, biggest nations, the most important ones, just two weeks before the war. So his personal involvement and the involvement of the whole government, that's what was critical at that moment and is still here. Look at the last initiatives. You decided to train our soldiers. You decided to provide us with anti-tank missiles. Finally, you pushed the whole discussion about tanks, whether tanks have to be given to Ukraine or not, by offering your Challenger tanks. Through the whole year, regardless of the changes of the, of the governments here in the UK, we, we, we felt the support and it's still very active. Well, we're talking ahead of what is likely to be a demonstration of that support of the UK for Ukraine, albeit in a vastly different sphere. This is the Eurovision Song Contest, which, of course, is Ukraine's by right to hold as reigning champions, but which the United Kingdom is staging instead. How big a moment is this for you personally as Ukraine's ambassador to the UK? Are you going to go to Liverpool? A couple of days ago, I was there. I was honored to be at a launching event when the event was handed over from the Torino, Italy, to Liverpool here. And I have to tell you that, first of all, on each and every occasion, everybody who was talking to us or to the crowd, they were always reminding that we are happy to have the contest, the musical, which is very important for Liverpool for many well-known reasons. But we are doing it on behalf of somebody else. And this was somebody else is Ukraine. Because our friends cannot have it, we are very happy to provide this opportunity. That was the set on each and every occasion. And it was very, very humbling to hear it. And even the symbolism of everything, the color scheme, everything was reminding that this is Liverpool contest, but for Ukraine on behalf of Ukraine. We have spoken elsewhere in this program to Ukraine's reigning champions from Kalush Orchestra, and we asked them a version of this question, but how important to Ukraine was winning the Eurovision Song Contest last year? Not just in terms of actually winning the thing, which is obviously pretty exciting in itself, but winning it in these extraordinary circumstances. You're right. This is the proud moment, and the Ukraine, a very 
music-loving nation, we do believe that we are singing much better than anybody else. We'll try to prove it again. And that's what we are trying. It's not just dwelling on the previous successes. We promised our British friends that, thank you very much, you allowed us to have it. Now we have this obligation to win it just to prove that we actually can do it again and have it next year in Ukraine for the whole possible and well-known again reasons. So I guess that not just the Kalosh Orchestra, but somebody else will try to fight it. Being frank and as in fair, I have to tell you that you're not just anybody who was doing it. Your, your singer came so close to be the number one. It was a great performance. So you had it right. That's your, 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 your revision as well. We were also wondering, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, because a big part of the reason that Russia attacked Ukraine in the first place back in 2014 was, of course, to try and forestall Ukraine growing closer to Europe, Ukraine orienting itself more to the West. Has the Eurovision Song Contest in Ukraine always been seen as a part of Ukraine's identity? Is that one of the reasons that being part of Eurovision was important? By itself, you know, Ukrainians just really love singing. And we believe that our language and the language of the English or Italian, the French, they are languages which are, you know, easier to sing and better to use for the singing. So this might not be a very fair comparison. We believe that our starting positions are quite good. That's why it was always quite popular in Ukraine, the Eurovision itself, or any musical contests. As we look ahead to this year's contest, what kind of image are you hoping Ukraine will project? Obviously, much more attention will be paid to Ukraine's entry, what it wears, what it says, what it sings, than there will be to any other entrant. We would be happy to come here in the numbers, which will be quite difficult this year for many Ukrainians. You know that most of our men are back home and are fighting. They are not able to travel. But at the same time, we'll have at least 150,000 Ukrainians who already found refuge here, safe heavens, in the UK. So these people are totally excited to come. I know I've seen Liverpool a couple of times. It's not big enough to accommodate all of them. But I guess that this will be a crazy, crazy event and everybody will be very happy. This is important for us, you know, just to, to have this resemblance of normality back to our people. And just finally, do you think winning is important for Ukraine? If we have to uh, lose to somebody, let it be UK. (laughs) Very diplomatically put, Ambassador. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio, and I'm joined now from the Eurovision city by the Ukrainian journalist Maria Romanenko, who has been conducting Eurovision tours of Liverpool for Ukrainian refugees. Maria, first of all, for you personally, what has it felt like being in Liverpool this week? It's incredible. And every time I come here, so obviously normally I'm in Manchester, but I've been coming a lot. And from Sunday onwards, I'll be like living here for a week. But every time I've been coming here, the city is like transforming and becoming more and more Eurovision-y. So like a few weeks ago, there was pretty much nothing. And then now today, for example, there's steps outside the Lime Street station. They turned them into like Eurovision colours which looks amazing. And there's like so much more now from the previous time and it's transforming and there's way more people now. It's, it's really strange to see this, remembering the city a few weeks ago and there was none of this. But as well as becoming more Eurovision-y, is it becoming noticeably more Ukraine-y? Yes, definitely. So there's stuff that's been like added to 
the Ukraine program all the time. Today, the Eurovillage opens, but it doesn't just open, you know, for the sake of it, for Eurovision, but it's opening with a concert of Kalush Orchestra last year's winners. They'll be performing, and I'm expecting there will be lots of Ukrainians coming to watch that. Then there's so many other events. Jamala, 2016 winner from Ukraine, she'll be doing a solo concert on the 11th, and then there'll be a This Is Ukraine concert where various Ukrainian singers and bands will be singing. And there's like lots and lots going on. There's the Super Lamp Banana, that the symbol of Liverpool has been painted into yellow and blue colours. There's been Ukrainian food introduced across different restaurants and cafes. There's Ukrainian cocktails in various places as well. Children are learning Ukrainian in schools and learning stuff about Ukraine. They've just stepped above and beyond to make sure that Ukraine feels well represented here. And it's wonderful to see. Because obviously Liverpool's in quite a difficult position here because normally when a city or a country hosts Eurovision, it's all about celebrating itself as last year's winners, whereas Liverpool must understand that this is basically Ukraine's show, it's just that Liverpool is hosting it. Do you feel like that the city has got the balance right? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's one Ukrainian. If you look at the hosts of Eurovision, they have, I think, three British one and one Ukrainian, so there you kind of feel well, perhaps it should have been two Ukrainian ones. And there's maybe some other elements where I think, well, there's 3,000 tickets that Ukrainians were sort of allowed to retrieve through the special scheme for that. And there's 90,000 tickets overall, you know, across the nine shows. And you feel like maybe it could have been more because if this was held in Ukraine, it'd be much more accessible for Ukrainians. But the positive stuff definitely overshades the negative stuff. I think there's lots of good balance like there's lots of collaboration between liverpool companies and ukrainian ones there's a beer initiative where they basically liverpool breweries and ukrainian breweries collaborated on creating eight special beers that will be uh, available to try in different places in liverpool so there's lots of collaboration as well there are in terms of cultural events there's something where liverpool uh, representatives can put like a show on or you know exhibition or perform there's also lots of Ukrainian ones so I feel like they really tried to show that this is a collaboration but also this is all held on behalf of Ukraine and you know when I was interviewing the Metro Mayor of Liverpool City Region Steve Rotherham and the culture director of Liverpool City Council Claire McColgan they were like really making it clear that they hosting it on behalf of Ukraine and they're doing everything to make sure that Ukraine feels well represented And I understand that Liverpool has also made a few, I guess, symbolic gestures of solidarity with Ukraine, including sandbagging some of Liverpool's own monuments in much the same way that Ukrainian cities have had to protect their monuments. Do gestures like that resonate with Ukrainians? I think so, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, obviously it's a a lot of that is bringing back sad emotions because obviously Ukraine wishes that it didn't have to do that and that it could hold a very happy, positive, festive Eurovision extravaganza and all of that. But it's good that they are trying to highlight the struggles that Ukraine is going through, as well as the positive things, the amount of Ukrainian talent, and they really concentrate on young talent, you know, modern talent. So it's good to see that. I know that there's a peace garden where they basically planting uh, Ukrainian plants and flowers to make sure that Ukrainians can go to this garden in Liverpool and like smell Ukraine, which is a really interesting idea. So it's very touching. Some of it is like sad emotions, but some of it is making me really happy. 
And when you've spoken to other Ukrainians looking ahead to Eurovision in Liverpool, what are they most looking forward to? And perhaps most importantly, do they think Ukraine can win this? We'd love for Ukraine to win, even if just for the fact that hopefully next year, this time next year, Ukraine would be able to host Eurovision. But I feel I'm also wary, like I don't want, I don't want the whole of Europe to hate us, like, oh, they won again. Maria Romanenko, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. We are now going to take a bit of a look at some of the contenders uh, at this year's Eurovision Song Contest. Not all of them. That would be ridiculous. We have boiled it down to five key or at least semi-relevant to the panel here for Gathered entrance. Uh, I am joined right now by Monocle Radio's Eurovision Desk Chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Monocle Radio's Deputy Eurovision Desk Chief, Carlotta Ribello, and Monocle Radio's Deputy Assistant Eurovision Desk Chief, Marcus Hippie. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. It's a a big desk, our Eurovision desk. It's the the biggest one in the newsroom. Um, Well, we are going to start, Carlotta, with uh, your home nation's entry. Uh, This is Portugal. We will play a bit of it, and then we will talk about what we have learned. Carlotta, what the hell was that? <laughs> so that's a song by Mimikat, uh, the a Portuguese uh, pop and soul singer. She won the national competition, Festival de Canção, with this track called Ai Curação, which means Oh My Heart. Uh, as you can tell, it's quite obviously Portuguese, mm-hmm. um, with some uh, Portuguese guitar in the background and uh, a bit of soul. Uh, I actually don't dislike it. Well, see, I was just going to say, uh, and I do want to bring in our Eurovision desk chief, Fernando, for his judgment on this one. I quite like that one, Fernando. The bookmakers give it no chance whatsoever, but I quite like it because it strikes me as old school Eurovision. We're going back to about the 1970s when most of Eurovision was when most of Eurovision consisted of frankly clueless continentals who had no idea uh, about pop music whatsoever beyond a Jerry and the Pacemakers cassette they'd found uh, or something. And and that does sound, Carlotta, like the kind of thing that you might broadcast in order to encourage a revolution, as of course famously one Portuguese Eurovision entry did. Well, the the main difference there is that the track that prompted revolution was very much a ballad, Andrew. (laughs) Well, that is true. uh, But with this one, I will say that one of the reasons that makes me uh, actually enjoy this track is that it's quite up-tempo and uh, upbeat, which is quite rare for Portugal. We are a country of sadness, nostalgia and <laughs> ballads when it comes to Eurovision and not not only. So it's been quite nice to actually uh, see that. Also, I do appreciate the return to um, the entry by Portugal being sung in Portuguese uh, because uh, up until last year, 
we had always entered in Portuguese and then we tried with an English language entry. Uh, so it's, I'm just, I'm, I think it's good for nations to continue to sing in their mother tongue. Uh, and just hearing that, Fernando, you can sense there's going to be silly outfits. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely a big fan of that one. What do you think? Well, I have to say it's not my favourite song from, from the rest. But, you know, I... I a, a, a lucifone schism listen, here in listen, the panel. I will applaud Portugal because... I like the fact that they tend to to send, uh, you know, songs in Portuguese, which is quite a difficult language. You know, let's remember Portugal is a small country, at least in the in European context. There are not other Lusophone countries there. I mean, this song is sweet and lovely. I don't think it's going to win, but I like Portugal. I think it's, it's very. They always do something different, uh, you know. So and and you know, there's been a community even last year, uh, Manus Saudade Saudade. Uh, some of my friends say, oh, my God, I still love that song. So I think they, they have this market of people that are not traditionally Eurovision fans and they like a little bit of indie pop as well or kind of or just a good old ballad. Uh, Marcus, we will shortly be hearing the Finnish entry. But just mm-hmm. before we do, what did you make of the Portuguese one? Do you regard them as a concern to Finland? No, I don't. It was a nice <laughs> song. It was a nice song. It was a nice song to listen to on the radio when you're driving somewhere. But I think that's about it. It was it was it was all right. OK, well, what? <laughs> Way to manage expectations there, Marcus, because what we have now is Finland. Here is a bit of it. Marcus, that is bloody awful. That reminds me of the early 2000s when almost all rock music was basically angry men in their 40s wearing shorts. Uh, Rammstein comes into mind, and I've actually been hearing from Jere Pohonen, Gäria is his artist name who is behind this song, that Rammstein has been one of his inspirations for this track, Cha Cha Cha. What we heard is from the second half of the song. I think I feel like I should be explaining it a little bit for a reason so that it makes a little bit more sense. So, Is it a work in two movements, Mark? It is kind of work in two movements. So it's a story about Friday evening. That's my understanding. So obviously it's, it's sung in Finnish. The first half of the song is, is, is like that. It's quite aggressive. It sounds a bit like Rammstein, kind of old school rock. And, and Bigaria is singing about, or basically talking about, how he's tired after a long week at work and he's in a bar downing pina coladas, just on a mission to get drunk. So it's, it's a, a it's, drinking it's, song. It's, it's a song about going out at the weekend and drinking after a week at work. That is a subject very rarely discussed actually, in the canon of rock and roll, Marcus. Actually, for I some reason, the innovation. For some reason, Finland has a particularly strong history when it comes to drinking songs. But just to continue, <laughs> then halfway through, this song changes totally. And all of a sudden, there's melody. Well, and, it, it becomes good. Uh, exactly, and, and, and almost. And at some point, Garia has reached the dance floor and he's singing about the joys of dancing when you are quite intoxicated by alcohol. And I, I have to admit, when I was listening to these songs for the first time, I, I, I found it painful to listen to. But I think it's a grower. The, the more I've been listening to it, the more I feel like it's in sync with so in- my mother country's uh, culture and kind of like our... our, our th- the, the the way we are in Finland, obviously, we have been quite heavily boozing nation, let's well, say, nowadays, so, but that's so why the, this song is a bit of a classic one. So it's kind of like, it makes reference to what music was like in the 1980s and 90s. You think the song, therefore, is perhaps a bit like Finnish vodka, as in it's kind of <laughs> painful and headachey the first few shots, and then you, you just become numb to all discomfort. Uh, Fernando, you, I understand, well, I know because we were talking about this earlier, you think this is a dark horse, you think this could win. I think this could win, 
and I have to say, Andrew, not every song gives me goosebumps, but this song gave me goosebumps. I'm in love with Kadia, and 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 and, and, and I spoke with him. I think this song is brilliant because I do agree some of the things that Marcus was saying that there is this metal Rammstein vibes but don't forget there's also some cha-cha-cha some pina coladas some elements of Europop the, the, the classic Finnish cocktail Europop pina colada and even I'm a big fan of horror films there's these dancers in pink like shocking pink outfits and they're doing some kind of mad kind of faces and I love that so it's a mixture of the human centipede in Finland yeah. uh, goes pop it's, it's, it's crazy I love that uh, it's, it's such the, the, the human centipede goes pop the sequel we didn't know we needed it's, it's a nod to the Finnish culture in a, in a lovely way I think and it's also fascinating what kind of discussion it's been launching in Finland there's there's a professional doctor's magazine like professional publication that's been criticizing this song because it's so old school and they don't feel like you should be glamorizing drinking like that anymore this is what we did 30 years ago surely you shouldn't be doing it anymore but Garia does uh, Carlotta a quick thought from you on Finland, can it can it keep Portugal from victory? I don't even care what it does to Portugal. I just hate the song so much. <laughs> it's just so horrible. It's going to be my uh, bathroom break during the the final for sure. Okay, well let's move along to the rightful winner. Here is some of it. Now, that magnificent sound we just heard was, of course, Australia's entry, which, in my utterly unbiased view, should sweep all before it. Fernando, Eurovision desk chief first. Are my country going to win at last? Andrew, I like you very much, but I'm <laughs> that's really... A, that's expectation management, if ever I've heard of it. I, the problem I have... Are, with... are you about to run off with my fitness instructor? That's, yes. what, that's, that's where this usually... Yeah, okay. The problem I have with this track, it doesn't feel of its time in a, in a bad way, but I don't think it's the worst song of the year, but I'm disappointed. That's not bad, we'll take that. I'm disappointed with Australia. I think Australia's time to step up its game, mm. but I do hope it gets qualified to the final. I didn't know Linkin Park are from Australia. Hey. <laughs> Who are these anyway? We haven't mentioned, we haven't introduced the song properly yet. Voyager. The... Actually, I'm going Voyager. With... No, I, I like Fernando's pronunciation. They are now officially Voyager. Voyager. <laughs> Australia um, goes Brazilian. Carlotta, what did you make of Voyager? Oh, God, it can it can go into the same bin where Finland is because I really do not like it, Andrew. Oh. Um it's just, yeah, It's I think it's trying to be a cool rock band from the early 2000s, but it forgot it's 2023. But maybe, you know, maybe it's uh, it's the distance uh, t- to t- the continent. Time, time moves slowly <laughs> where I'm from, Carlotta. Um, we should move along to the UK's entry because the UK, though they are not the rightful host, are the host. They were runners-up last year and, as we have been explaining, are stepping up for Ukraine uh, for obvious reasons. This is the UK's entry. Uh, this is May Miller. Here is a bit of it. Instead, 
See, I, I should defer to one of the two actual British citizens at this table for all their non-British origins. Um, Marcus, first of all, you took the pledge reasonably recently. Does that now, does that swell you with patriotic pride? Well, I'm, I'm a bit torn because I do like the UK entry as well. I think I prefer the Finnish one more because the Finnish entry is more original. But I think the UK has done a great job again with this track. I think it's, I think it's, it's listenable, nice music, and I do enjoy the track. Obviously, the competition is going to be harsh, so I don't think this song is going to get further than top 10, but Maybe. I think it still has a lot of potential. See, F- Fernando, unsurprisingly, I thought it was bloody dreadful, but but do you think within the Eurovision context, it does fit a pattern of the UK undergoing a bit of a renaissance, because the UK were runners-up last year after years of getting absolutely nowhere, and I think that was a combination of the UK treating the whole thing with complete contempt, sending obviously terrible acts, and plus the fact that everybody else in Europe hates the British. It's undeniable there is a renaissance here. And and it's about time. The Brits, they do love Eurovision. I mean, the, the TV ratings can can tell you that. And I think May Miller's song, it's it's great. The only problem with it, I do think she could end up in the in the top ten. Who knows? But it's it's it, it's very normal. It feels it's a song that's in the charts. I mean mm-hmm. something that is nothing too surprising but it's a very decent song and it is about cheating which is a big trend in 2023 when it comes to music cheating. just look uh, yeah uh, again fernando a subject barely touched upon by half a century of popular song beforehand cheating and drinking who knows <laughs> <laughs> uh, carlotta it kind of reminds me of the entrance um entry a few years ago it was at embers by the uk it's kind of a, a, a track that's made for shows like love island or uh <laughs> Big Brother or whatever, like some reality TV married at first sight, that sort of thing. I can see it in like the transitions to like a very tense dinner party or something. But as Fernanda says, it is a track that doesn't scream Eurovision to me. I think it's, I don't think it's a bad song. It's catchy, it's pop, but um, it doesn't, if it was released outside of Eurovision, I think it would be as equally as popular as it might be now. Um, and I think even though the UK is, uh, there is a bit of a renaissance and it's getting better, perhaps the thing that has been missing is songs that could only really exist inside the Eurovision context. Um, yeah, that's, that's. but I, I don't think it's a bad song. I agree with Fair. I think it could easily make the top 10. But not not a winner, we don't think. No. no. Okay. Well, let's move along finally to the inevitable and quite right sentimental favourite, at least, if not the bookmaker's favourite. Um, and this is to return this episode of The Foreign Desk, and I will just remind our listeners that you are, in fact, listening to an episode of The Foreign Desk, uh, to the underlying theme uh, of this week's episode. This is Ukraine's entry. Don't get what you say, yeah, yeah. Now, Fernando, obviously Ukraine will again, uh, I think, enjoy a significant groundswell of support from the public vote uh, at least, but that probably won't be enough to get them over the line. Uh, Will this be a chance, do you think? Well, it's the fourth favourite, according to the bookies at the moment. Of course, there's always a chance to win, but unlike Kalush Orchestra, Stephanie, I think there was a sense of urgency in the song Mm -hmm. as well, which was, you know, about mother Ukraine. Of course, the song this year has some elements as well that relates a little bit with the conflict, Heart of Steel, you know, the the people that are defending the land as well. 
it's a great song, but it's not as as, as powerful in this context like uh, last year's as well. But it's, it's a good choice. I mean, it's a little bit of electronic music. It's a very serious track, mm. um, I, I would say as well. It doesn't really screen Eurovision to me, but it will be end up in the top five for sure, but not quite a winner. Uh, Carlotta, you have visited Ukraine a couple of times for us since this conflict began. It's obviously not the most important thing in the world in any context, the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, and it's certainly not the most important thing in the world in Ukraine's current context. But nevertheless, this will mean something in Ukraine, won't it? Because they they will be on the world stage. The event will be, for all that it's being held in Liverpool, a celebration of Ukraine. this does matter, doesn't it? Absolutely. This, uh, in the way that, uh, you know, uh, the, the win by with Stefania last year, when I visited, you would hear the track playing uh, on the streets. People were actively listening to the song and there's so much symbolism behind mm. it too and the idea that you have an entire continent rallied behind you and your cause and peace for your nation. Now, um, of course, uh, with this with this track, I don't think it will have the same impact, just sadly because the conflict has dragged on for beyond a year so it's not the same thing as it was last year but you know it is still an amazing reminder of uh, Ukrainian um, music Ukrainian pop the idea of this message of like resilience that they're trying to portray which has been the word that has been used the most to describe mm-hmm. um, Ukraine's people um, so I do think it, this is going to strike a chord with a lot of people um, uh, ac- across the world um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it would, would be one of the favourites by the public. Uh, and Marcus, would you be philosophical on balance if Finland was tipped over by Ukraine? Obviously, I feel a lot of sympathy for, for, for Ukraine, so I, I wouldn't really mind. But when it comes to what I think about the song, I think it's once again pleasant to listen to it. Kind of, It's kind of in the same category with Portugal. It's nice to listen to when you're driving somewhere, when you're not paying too much attention, but that's about it. <laughs> uh, and Fernando, you have in fact been speaking uh, to Ukraine's 2023 Eurovision entrant. I did. And, and, and you know, I think it's so interesting the way they met. Uh, so basically they met at medical school. Uh, it's Andri and Jeffrey. And Jeffrey comes from Nigeria, actually. I even asked in the interview, I mean, is Eurovision big in Nigeria? No, but who knows, maybe in the future. So they have a lovely, lovely story. And they, they told me how challenging it was to do the rehearsals. I mean, because they, they heard the sirens all the time. So it's, it's quite hard, actually, being an artist in Ukraine now. So I had a lovely chat to them, which I believe we have a clip, right? It's definitely very unusual. But we've been dealing with it for like more than a year already. And it's still as unpredictable as it was in the beginning so we just have to find a way to you know to schedule our time around this whole situation so we can get things done as well as everybody else at the end of the day we still have to get things going and in this day and time you know this type of stuff shouldn't be happening and that's why we're doing all the best we can to make the victory faster and help as much as we can and help anyone. And if we can help everyone, that will be nice as well. But we are doing our best, our possible best, yes. I would like to add also that, you know, like you can't never be used to this because, you know, it's the same. You go and you feel, you have thoughts that any minute a missile can hit you or your friends. So like Jeffrey said, we're just trying to manage, do our best in the situation, transfer all our emotions into the good things that we can make to make our victory faster so all our citizens can feel safe and defend our land. 
No, absolutely. And you guys, you know, I think it's a massive deal representing your country on the big stage in an event like the Eurovision. Jeffrey, what can you tell us a bit more about the staging? Because I keep telling people Eurovision is not, I mean, the song is a big part of it, but it's how you present on stage, you know. I know it feels quite dramatic. I love the performance from the videos I've seen from your performance of Heart of Steel. Well, you might have seen some pictures online, maybe, maybe not. The visuals basically is a representation of the song. And it's a, the message the song is about is what we're trying to put on, on stage. And that is a message of strength and message of courage and bravery. And moving forward, having a positive attitude in negative situations. So I think the visuals completely put that you know into perspective. And definitely, I think people will be excited when they see, I think, the full performance. Yeah, I would like also to add that our song called Heart of Steel, which means from Ukrainian, Stalava Serce. But recently we just started our fundraising campaign for small hearts of Ukrainian children, which are burning now on the sounds of explosions and missiles and drones. So we, together with Ukrainian companies and companies around the world, are raising funds for incubators to save children's hearts. And everyone who wants to do donation, they can visit President's website, United24. The name is Caring People Save Children's Hearts. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. So I hope our listeners will go there as well and, you know, donate. And my next question is, of course, Ukraine won last year. And I mean, in an ideal world, the event would be hosted in Ukraine. But how do you think the UK is faring? Because even though it's in the UK, for me, feels is very much a joint kind of hosting because there's a strong Ukrainian presence. I know there'll be other Ukrainian artists going to Liverpool. How do you feel? Because I know you're there in Liverpool already. How do you feel this collaboration between both countries? Well, it's been amazing from what we've seen. Honestly, we've seen uh, much online, but we really haven't had time to go around and check it, you know, face-to-face in real life. So we will be excited to uh, make time to check these out. From what I understand, we've seen, like, the Beatles wearing the traditional uh, Ukrainian Veshevan, can we call it. There is also, if I remember correctly, Protect the Beats. Singing Birds. Yeah, Solovay, the Singing Birds, yeah. yeah. It's all just, like, really surreal. It's amazing what the UK has done to really represent Ukraine, not in Ukraine so it's just really yeah it's really it's really amazing yeah it's sad that we can make it in Ukraine but we want to say a huge thanks to the United Kingdom and to all countries who support Ukraine in these hard times but we're gonna win we will defeat the evil and we're gonna have peace tomorrow and together we will celebrate it and that was Andrea and Jeffrey from Dvorci Ukraine's 2023 entry for the Eurovision Song Contest That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening and playing us out, not that we're biased or anything is Ukraine's entry for this year's Eurovision Song Contest. This is Dvorci with Heart of Steel. Until next time, goodbye and Slava Ukraine. Yes, I got a heart of steel.